seems to me that as we've been working our way through Scripture over the last several years, that there are a couple of themes that just continue to pop up in our teaching. And if you're new here or if you're visiting, our typical approach to Scripture is that we start at the beginning of a book of the Bible and we work our way all the way through the end and we do our very best to keep it in its proper historical and grammatical context as we go so that we can extract from it everything that the Holy Spirit would have intended as He inspired it. And as we've gone through the Scripture over the last couple of years, these themes just seem to keep popping up. And if I'm being honest with you, I would have to confess to you that I sometimes worry that you may go home saying to yourselves, wow, we've heard this one before, Scott, you need to come up with some new material. And our message from our passage in the book of Ephesians today is really one of those. And if I'm being honest with you for a moment, I actually thought to myself, should I skip this passage this morning and should I move on to the next one? And as I considered that, I felt in my heart a rebuke from the Holy Spirit for having considered that. Do you know that there's a reason that certain themes pop up in the Bible as we're reading through it, as we're working our way through that? Did you know that? There's an actual reason that these concepts show up multiple times in the pages of Scripture. And it's because there is this remarkable consistency. There is this remarkable continuity within the pages of Scripture, within the pages of its various books written by various authors. And the reason for that is that the Holy Spirit has inspired it all. The Holy Spirit is the one who has written it all. He is the one who has inspired it all. So that the message that he spoke to us through the Apostle Paul is very consistent with the message that he spoke to us through James and through Peter and through John. And so if the Holy Spirit decides to bring a topic to us through the pens of multiple authors, then that should really tell us something. Do you know what that should tell us? It should tell us this is an important one. And we need to make sure that we get our arms around this. This is a really important one. You need to make sure that you get it. And so today, I'm going to take you to the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians where you're going to hear something that you have probably heard before. And so I just want you to consider that the Holy Spirit may be trying to tell you something this morning. Could you consider that for a moment? I think it's possible that the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us something here at Root River Church this morning. And He may be trying to tell us this is a very, very important topic and I want to make sure that you get it. And so, rather than moving on to the next portion of Scripture as I was tempted to do, we're going to stay here and we're going to take our time in these first two verses and we're going to make sure that we have a complete understanding of what the Holy Spirit intended because I believe that this is a topic that the Holy Spirit would have for Root River Church to really get their arms around. It's very important because I believe He's trying to tell us something. So I just want to encourage you this morning to allow your hearts to be open and to receive what the Holy Spirit has for us because I want you to know that this topic this morning, it is not enough for us to get the truth into our heads. It's not enough just to have an intellectual understanding of this truth. We need to be shaped. We will need to be formed by it so that the Holy Spirit can take it and allow this truth to manifest itself by flowing out from our hearts from a truth that is deeply rooted within our hearts. And so I'm not going to apologize if we ever get to a place again where we present the same truth on several occasions. In fact, I think what we'll do is we'll do the complete opposite of that. And I think we'll linger there. And I think we'll take some time to really understand. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I can remember one time when I was about 11 or 12. Well, it really wasn't all that long ago. 
I'm sitting at the dinner table one night with my family, and my little brother, who would have been two or three at the time, was sitting on the other side of the table, and he was sitting there in his high chair. And I could just see that the little guy was just watching me really closely. I mean, he was watching everything that I did. And as I ate my dinner, I noticed that my little brother was copying everything that I did. I mean, if I scooped something up off of my plate, he did the exact same thing. And I thought, hmm, this is interesting. So if I would pick up my glass of iced tea and take a drink of my iced tea, he would pick up his little sippy cup and you know, he would take a drink as well. And so I watched it for a couple of minutes and I started having some fun with it, you know. And I'm patting myself on the head and doing all these things. And, you know, I'd take my fork and I would drop it on the table and then he's doing the same thing. He would drop the fork on the tray of his high chair. And so I, you know, I played around with it and had some fun, but ultimately it got to the place where it really started to annoy me. And so after I had been sufficiently annoyed, I, you know, I did what any good big brother would do. I mean, obviously, big brothers, you know that you're not going to beat him up right in front of mom and dad. That's, that's bad. But what you can do is you can tell on him, right? So that's what I did. I, I've told on him. And my dad helped to put it in its proper perspective by quoting Charles Colton. And I'm convinced to this day that my dad had no idea that he was quoting Charles Colton. And this is what he said to me. He said, Scott, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Now I was a pretty bright kid, but I wasn't that bright, I guess, if I'm being honest with you. I tell my kids that I was, but I really wasn't. And so, of course, I had no idea what my dad meant when he said that to me. You know, I'm confused. I'm like, what are you talking about? And so he had to help me out. He said, Scott, he's copying you because he admires you and he wants to be like you. And then I, you know, then I felt pretty cool. I'm like, yeah, he should because... <laughs> He admires me? I mean, I couldn't believe that. My little brother admired me. Now, since that time, you'll be glad to know that my little brother's moved on from that phase in his life. and He no longer copies or mimics everything that I do, but it was fun for a while. He's outgrown it. But I was honored by it. Did you know that? As I thought about it, I was honored by that. And I became proud of that. It made me feel special to know that my little brother thought so highly of me that he would actually copy everything that I did. I was honored. So I'm going to take you now to Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to remind you what Paul has been telling us as we've made it up to this point. He's been telling us that we must no longer act like people who do not know God, but rather, he says, we should conduct ourselves in patterns of behavior that are fitting for people of our position. He's been telling us that we must put off all of our old habits. We must be distinct from the rest of the world. And then as we get to verse 1 in chapter 5, this is what we find. Follow along with me. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And I'm going to just stop right there. As I studied this verse for a while, there were a couple of things when I looked at it that just jumped right off of the pages at me. First of all, Paul tells us that we are to be in the Greek mimites. Of God. We are to be mimites of God. The ESV translates it as imitators, and I think that's an outstanding translation. It's where we get our word mimic. So we're supposed to mimic God. But the other word that I keyed in on as I was going through this was the word that is translated be. And it seems kind of odd that I would focus on that, but this is the word genomai, and it means to become. And if I were to parse this word genomai for you, I would say that as it's presented in this verse, I would say that it's in the present middle imperative. 
Now, the reason that that is significant, the reason it's important for us to understand that this word genomai is in the present middle imperative is that it implies a continuation of action in Paul's command. You see what I'm saying? So what Paul is saying is that we should be continually imitating God. As a pattern of life, we are to conduct ourselves as people who continually or constantly imitate or copy the character of God. Do you get that? It is a process. It's something that we are continually doing. We are to allow God to be the model, and we are to allow His character to be the standard by which we strive to attain the holiness of God. We're to be continually mimicking Him. We're to be continually copying God. We are to be constantly doing all of the things that God does. And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, really, if we're to imitate anyone, that probably is a pretty good place to start, isn't it? I mean, we're to be like God. Wait a minute, does that feel a little bit weird for us to say? That we're to be like God, doesn't that feel a little bit strange? But I want you to know it shouldn't feel all that strange for you because it's consistent all through the pages of Scripture. The instruction to be like God is consistent. In Leviticus 11.44 we read, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and do what? Be holy. Why would I be holy? Because I am holy, God says. He says, be holy because I am holy. So we are supposed to imitate the holiness of God. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, you therefore must be perfect. Why must we be perfect? Because your Father in heaven is perfect. So we should mimic the perfection of God. 1 John chapter 3 tells us that it is our goal to be like God. If you'll take a look at verse 2, it says, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. That's our goal. That's the way it should be because we'll see him as he is. Now listen, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. Why? Because God is pure. So we honor God by trying to be like him. We understand that of our own strength, it is impossible for us to be like God, isn't it? What a high standard. There is absolutely no way that we can ever live up to that. Why would Jesus Christ tell us, why would the Holy Spirit tell us in multiple pages throughout the Scripture that we are to be like God when He knows full well that we can't do it? We can never be like God. I can never just force myself through the exercise of self-discipline and restraint to forge myself myself into the likeness of God. I just can't do that. Can you? We can't concentrate so hard that we ultimately develop the holiness of God. We can't work so hard that we ultimately develop the perfection of God. I can't try to be pure so hard to the extent that I actually achieve the purity of God. I can never do that. It only happens as we submit to the leading and the direction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's the only way you can ever get there. So I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14, and I want you to see what Paul says, he says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see that? 
So Paul is saying that it is God who is the standard and it is the Holy Spirit who is alive and who is active within you, guiding you and directing you and redirecting you and redirecting you and turning you and stopping you and leading you so that you will be constantly being transformed from one level of the reflection of the glory of God's character to the next. That's the point. You must be continually imitating Him. We must be continually mimicking Him. We must be continually copying the character that, of God in Christ that He modeled for us. So I think the question is, if we know, if we have been able to establish that we are to mimic, if we have been able to establish that we are to copy the character of God, what does that look like for us? I mean, what does that look like? Well, we've already seen that it means that we have to be holy, which is without sin. We've already seen that it means that we must be perfect, which is ultimately mature and spiritually complete. We have also seen that it means that we must be pure, which speaks of a complete moral goodness. We must be all of those things. We know that we have to be there. And in order for us to do that, it means we have to put off the things that are not consistent with His character. We've spoken about that to some extent. And what does that look like? Well, it it means that we put off falsehood. It means that we put off thumos, this erupting anger. It means that we put off anything that is untrue. It means that we extend forgiveness. It means that we put off stealing. We know that. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see that it means that we do some other things. In the coming weeks, we're going to learn that it means that we put off sexual impurity. It's going to tell us that we are to put off foolish talk. We're going to find out that we are to put off crude joking. That's what it means. But in the immediate context of this portion of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us specifically one thing that he wants us to know that it looks like. And so I want to take you there, and I want to help you understand. You see, there is one attribute, there is one characteristic of God that hasn't been covered in all of those things we've just spoken about. We know that He's holy. We know that He's perfect. We know that He's pure. But there's more to it than that. And this is the characteristic we've spoken about many of times in the past. We've said this several times, and it's the one that Paul plugs into verse 2. Before we get there, I want to tell you that in 1 John 4.8, John tells us that God is what? Love. God is love. And when Paul gave us the command to mimic God... When Paul gave us the command to copy God, he chose one of God's characteristics which he wanted us to mimic. And you know which one that was? It was God's love. Take a look at verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Can I just tell you that I feel that God would have Root River Church to be known as a church that models the love of God? Don't you feel that way? I believe that God wants Root River Church to be a church that models the love of God. And when Paul says we are to walk in love, once again, this is a concept that you know of. This is the Greek word peripateo. We talked about this in the first part of chapter 4. And it literally means that we are to walk around. To peripateo is to walk around. So what Paul is saying is that we are to walk around in love. He's telling us that love should be the pattern of our lives. It should be the pattern of everything that we do on a daily basis. As a pattern of life, love should carry 
characterize who we are right here at Root River Church. Love should characterize who you are in your homes. Love should characterize who you are in your workplace. It's how you should be governed. It should be the governing principle of your conduct, love. In fact, I want you to know that everything that you do in your homes, everything, every word that you speak, every action that you take in your home, every word that you speak in your workplace, all of those things should be done through the filter of love. And did you know that 1 Corinthians 13 also tells us that absolutely everything that we do in the church, from the getting together to share the Lord's table to the exercising of spiritual giftings, should be predicated on love. It should all be done through the filter of love. And we've gone over this concept multiple times, and I'm pretty sure you have a good understanding of what it means. But just in case you've forgotten, I'm going to spend some time now helping you develop that again. So I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to drive it deeply into your understanding because it needs to be something that is second nature to us. It needs to just flow out of us. It needs to just be who we are in our very hearts. It's supremely important for us, friends. Love, listen, is the ultimate proof. It is the ultimate proof that you know God and that you are truly His people. It is the ultimate proof that you are who you say you are. Love is the measuring stick by which we examine ourselves to see if we are really in the faith. It cannot be stated more clearly than we find in the book of 1 John. So I'm going to take you there. Take a look at 1 John 4, 8. Listen to this. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Is that pretty clear? Anyone who does not love does not know God. Have you ever wondered to yourselves if someone was a believer? Have you ever seen someone and said, you know, I wonder if that guy is a believer? Have you ever gotten up and looked at yourself in the mirror and said, man, I wonder if I'm a believer? This is it. This is a really simple thing. This is how you know. Listen, take the character of their lives. Take the character of your own life and run it through 1 John 4, 8. Do you want to know if you're a believer? Do you want to know if the people around you are believers? Ask yourself, do they love? Do they? Do they love? Because if they don't love, then we know for sure they're not believers. We know for sure that they don't know God because the Bible teaches he who does not love does not know God. But remember, we're not just talking about some sort of sentimental, feel-good expression of love and a bunch of hollow words that you say on Valentine's Day. When we were in the book of John, in chapter 15, we heard Jesus say this, Greater love has no man than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Over the years, we've spoken on several occasions about the different Greek words for love. You're all familiar with the word eros, which is an erotic or a sexual or an emotional love. We all know of the, the word that's translated love as philos. Philos is an affectionate type of love. And they're both good words. They're both good expressions of love. We need both of them. But then there is the highest form of love, which is the love that the Lord is speaking of here. And you all know which one that is, do you? Agape. It's agape. This is the love that the Lord is speaking of. This is the biblical love. This is the one that Christ says, no greater love has man than this, that as an act of his own will, he would make the ultimate expression of self-sacrifice to demonstrate his love for others. That is the ultimate display of agape. 
I'm reminded of John chapter 13. You'll remember that Jesus and His disciples were celebrating the last Passover meal together just a few hours before Jesus would be arrested. Think of this. And as they were there celebrating, His disciples were sitting around the table and they were arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. They were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. And this was not uncommon for them. They did this all the time. In fact, James and John actually got their mother in on it. And as they sat there at the table that night, hours before Jesus would be crucified, as they sat there arguing, Jesus Christ got up. He took off His outer garment. He strapped on a towel And he humbly got down on his knees and he washed the dirty, uncovered, no sock wearing feet of every single one of them. One by one by one, all around the table. The notion that the one who had made all things the one who created it all in the very beginning, the one without whom nothing was made that has been made, that one who sustains the universe was on his knees washing the filthy feet of his friends was absolutely amazing. Think of this. He washed their feet What a strange expression of love. This is uncommon. And it was completely foreign to these men who were just arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Can you imagine that? They're busy looking into getting the best roles in the kingdom. They're busy looking into how they might advance themselves. They were looking about how they might be made great. And as they argued, the Creator of the world got down on His knees and wash their dirty feet. To them, the command to love like this, the command to love in a way that is self-humiliating, the command to love in a way that is so sacrificial to them was completely incomprehensible. It hadn't even occurred to them. Can you imagine? Don't you think they should have been profoundly shaken by that? After all they had seen Him do, After their own claim, Peter himself said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And even then, they argued, and the humble Christ, Son of God, washed their feet. How foreign. Shouldn't they have just been rattled by that? I've seen foot washing ceremonies where people get down. We'll never do that, just so that you know we're never going to wash. We're not doing that. <laughs> it kind of grosses me out. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but think about this. They say that that is so humbling. And this is exponentially greater than that. God washed their dirty feet, He humiliated Himself. Listen to me. Then He got up and He said, Did you see the way I just loved you? That's how you're supposed to love each other. Did you see that? Did you see how I just loved you? I want you to love the guy sitting next to you just like that. But he's got a foot odor problem. You don't even understand. I mean, the guy's never heard of Tanactin. It hasn't even been. I want you to love this guy just like that. 
Listen, that kind of love does not exist in our world. That kind of love is not here. People don't have the capacity to love like that. We don't have the capacity to sacrifice like that. We're just like the disciples. We're seeking our own advancement. We seek our own pleasure. That's what we do. And Jesus teaches us that we are to love like He has loved. And what that means is that we are humbly on our knees, wrapped in a towel if need be, washing the feet of your husbands, washing the feet of your wives, washing the feet of your little brother, of your big sister, all of these things, serving the fellow followers of Jesus Christ right here at Root River Church. That's how you are to love. And if you don't love, to that extent, friends, you you do not know God. That's the instruction of the Bible. We can't do that for one another, can we? I mean, Jesus Christ sacrificed His honor. He sacrificed His dignity. And we can't even begin to sacrifice five minutes of our time for each other. We can't sacrifice anything for one another. He sacrificed His very life, taking the full wrath of God on our behalf, and we can't even sacrifice our video games or our favorite TV shows or a few minutes on our cell phones for one another. We need to understand, friends, this is not an option. This is not a love one another if you want to. This is a command. It's an injunction. Paul does not command us that this type of love should be an option. He says, this is how you are to do it. Make sure that you are doing it. And not only that, Jesus himself commands us in John 13, 34, saying, a new commandment that I give to you that you do what? That you love one another just as I have loved you. Love one another this way. It wasn't a question. It was an imperative. It was a command. And this particular command came right from the mouth of God Himself. Can there be any more authoritative command than that? This is not an option for us. This is the sacrificial love that should characterize who we are. This is the sacrificial love that could characterize how we walk around in this world on a daily basis. Friends, if you are a believer, you are required, you are commanded to sacrifice your own desires. You are commanded to sacrifice your own pleasure for that of other people. That's the command. If you're a believer, that's what you do. He who does not love does not know God. You're commanded to prefer others above yourselves. Can you imagine that? How weird is that? I'm to prefer other people above myself. What does Philippians 2, 3 say? Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing out of vanity, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Count others as better than you are. This is stunning. For these disciples, this is absolutely stunning. The world says, look out for yourself. And Christ says, no, look out for other people. Christ says, give the best you've got to everyone else. The world says, get the very best you can for yourself. The world says, take care of your needs and your wants and your desires. And Christ says, sacrifice them for other people. This is the commandment. This is the order. This is the different commandment that he gave to us. This is the thing that is so unusual. I mean, think about this. Can you imagine how vibrant relationships in the church would be if we could learn to love like that? Let me go a little bit further. Can you imagine the vibrancy of relationships in your own home if you could learn to obey this command? 
How could marriages ever fail if husbands gave up the things that make them feel good, if husbands gave up the desires of their own flesh, if husbands were willing to sacrifice their own happiness to bring joy to their wives? Women, say amen right now. That's right. What would happen if while husbands were doing that, wives would learn to sacrifice doing anything that it takes, anything that it takes to make their husbands happy. Do you know it would be impossible for marriages to fail if we did that? If your greatest joy was making your mate happy, and your mate's greatest joy was making you happy, how could a marriage like that fail? It's impossible. Imagine people giving up Instagram to serve their parents. Imagine Parents putting down the remote control so that they can serve their kids. Imagine people coming to church not so that they can walk away saying, wow, I was really blessed, but so that they can walk away saying, I hope that I blessed that person today. Imagine. That's the command. That's the injunction. What do you think would happen if we began to exercise that kind of love in the church? What do you think would happen? What would that look like? What would happen if people obeyed this command and they really began to sacrifice for one another, to serve one another? What do you think would happen? And that's the way it should be for us. Remember, it's not an option. It's an order. It's a command. Right from the mouth of God. Can you imagine people at Root River Church giving up their time, their money, their talent, whatever it is, to be an encouragement to someone outside of their own families? Can you imagine people at Root River Church sacrificing their own happiness to make the person sitting next to them happy? Imagine people sacrificially exercising their spiritual gifts to build one another up, to really help one another by being encouragers, by being leaders, by being givers, by being people who pray for the needs of others to the point where it hurts, where it's a sacrifice, where it costs us something. Can you imagine what would happen? Imagine if believers right here began to do that. Isn't that the way Christ loved you? Is it? How did Christ love you? Well, He gave Himself up. He gave up not only all the privilege of heaven, but He gave up His very life in a demonstration of His unbelievable love for you. And that's how you are to love the person sitting in front of you and the person sitting behind you. I think people would want to be a part of a church body like that, don't you? How many of you want to be a part of a church body like that? How many of you are willing to sacrifice and give up your own desires to serve those around you so that you can be a part of a church body like that. Far fewer hands. But that's the way Christ loved you. There's something amazing about a love like that. And when you begin to exercise that kind of love in your life, I want you to know that there's something else that happens. The final part of Ephesians 5.2 tells us that if we would love like that, it would be a fragrant offering and a sacrifice pleasing to God. Do you see that? Listen, the sacrifice that you make when you love people around you, the sacrifice that you make is not so much a sacrifice for the members of your family. It's not so much a sacrifice for the people of the church. It's a sacrifice that you make unto God. How valuable should the sacrifice that you make to God actually be? What does the book of Malachi tell us? It should be the most costly. 
It should be a beautiful offering. It should be the very best offering. The sacrifice that you make to God should be the very, very best that you have to offer. What you bring to God on a daily basis should be the most costly, the most precious, the most valuable thing that you own. And you sacrifice it and you willingly give it up to God because it is a pleasant offering unto Him. It is a beautiful offering. It is a fragrant and it is a costly offering. And that is the only kind of offering that pleases God. For you to bring half-dead animals, for you to bring the crippled animal, for you to bring the things that are already going to die anyway and sacrifice those to God, what what is that to Him? What He wants from you is the very best. And you give it to Him by loving the people around you. That's how it works, my friends. And that to him is a beautiful offering. It's fragrant and it's costly and it pleases God. Do you know why it pleases him? Think about this. Why does it please him? Because in loving sacrificially, you know what you're doing? You're mimicking and you're copying God's character and the love that he displayed for you. Do you see that? What honors God more than you trying to copy his character? What honors God more than you doing the things that He does? He gave the most costly sacrifice to love you. Will you in turn turn around and give an inexpensive sacrifice to someone else? Is that what you would do? He wants the most beautiful. He wants the very best. And the sacrifice that you make to God and serving and loving other people should be the most costly sacrifice that you can make. We never bring a sacrifice to God. What does David say? I will not bring that to God which costs me nothing. I'm going to bring the most costly. I'm going to bring the most valuable. Our worship of giving, our worship of sacrifice to God must be extravagant. Bring that sacrifice to God by sacrificing for the people around you today. Father, I thank You so much for the great love that You demonstrated by sending Jesus Christ to die on our behalf even while we were still sinners, Your Bible teaches. And so Lord, as we examine our hearts this morning and we think about our expression of love to other people and we check ourselves to see if we really know God by the expression of our love making itself manifest to us. I pray that you would just reveal the truth through our hearts. Reveal the truth of our relationship to you. I pray, Lord, that everyone in this building this morning will have the assurance and the confidence of their faith based on what they found in their own hearts and their own expression of love for others around them. I pray, God, that our expression of love to you is made evidence in our expression of love to others. Lord, I just pray that for Root River Church that you'd make us a church that is characterized by and known by this kind of self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd make us a church that, that gives up everything to serve this church body and that gives up everything to serve the community of Franklin and the surrounding cities, even as you gave yourself up in self-sacrifice for us. I pray, Lord, that the world would look at this place and that they would know that we are disciples because of the love that they see right here at Root River Church.